The Living Church of God presents A Year in Prophecy. What does the future hold? Where is the world headed? Can you really know the future? Predictors of the future have generations held their audiences spellbound with their so-called prophecies. But time and again, many have been revealed to be charlatans and pretenders. But there is one source of predictions that has been around for thousands of years that you can prove to yourself is true and accurate, the most printed book in the history of man, the Holy Bible. This book unlocks the secrets of mankind, hidden mysteries that, if understood, can show who we are and where we are headed. The books that fill your very own Bible make up the Word of God, in essence, the mind of the Son of God, Jesus Christ in print. Bible prophecy reveals that we are living in the last days of this present age. How do we know? Many people have thought Christ's return was imminent, and yet the decades and centuries continue to pass. The Apostle Peter prophesied that scoffers will come in the last days, saying, where is the promise of His coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. That's 2 Peter 3, verse 3 and 4. It's no different today. In the years leading up to 2012, some became concerned about the Mayan prophecies. Some went to great lengths preparing for the end of the world. Big Hollywood blockbusters depicted what might happen in 2012. But we're still here. It didn't happen. Does that mean that the end of the age will never come? God clearly states in His Word that He tells the end from the beginning. That's Isaiah 46, verse 10. His plan is positive, full of blessing, strength, and courage for those who look to Him, even when times get tough. He told the Israelites going into captivity, For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. That's in Jeremiah 29, verse 11. God is faithful and good and a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. Hebrews 11, verse 6. Things happen so quickly today, we can be easily overwhelmed by this seemingly never-ending bad news we see on TV and the Internet, instantly, while it happens. Prophetic events can appear to move so quickly that if we're not careful, we lose the forest for the trees, so to speak. We are avalanched by events which are hard to keep up with and sometimes difficult to understand. Is there a greater meaning behind all of the chaos we see and hear of in today's news? Perhaps it's good from time to time to take a step back and look at the big picture of end-time prophecy. We need to consider, are the times we are living in just the same as it's always been? Or are there unique and remarkable things going on right now that may be directly related to what God has predicted in the Bible? In this year's feast film, we would like to take one slice of time, a period lasting one year, and examine what has been happening in the world in relation to God's Word and end-time prophecy. We know it's sobering, considering the times we're in, but it's also exciting to see how close we are to Jesus Christ intervening powerfully on this earth. He will soon be ushering in His millennial reign on this planet, as typified by this Feast of Tabernacles. So at this time, I would like to introduce this year's feast film, A Year in Prophecy. 
let us be guilty for defending the truth. When we see the agony of even just one family that has lost loved ones, it becomes more personal. People are losing their source of livelihood and their dignity. The total moral collapse of human civilization. What are we today? God is opening up doors that we could not conceive of opening 30 years ago. We need to be ready and we need to be strong. But if you do not obey me and do not observe all these commandments, and if you despise my statutes, or if your soul abhors my judgments, so that you do not perform all my commandments, but break my covenant, I also will do this to you. I will even appoint terror over you. I will break the pride of your power. Greetings, friends. A 2011 Gallup poll in America included this statement in summary. Confidence in the traditional American dream that each generation can work its way up in the world and have a better life than the previous generation appears to be slipping away. Americans are less likely to believe this to be true today than at any time on record. End of quote. Why? Why this pessimistic view of the future? Using a prepared text for a speech which President Obama gave in 2006, he misread his script, leaving out the word just. He said, Whatever we once were, we are no longer a Christian nation. You may have heard this. The statement was very highly publicized. The script of his statement was published to explain and defend the criticism. I believe the published text is accurate and very descriptive of the most significant change taking place in America. Obama's prepared script read, Given the increasing diversity of America's population, the dangers of sectarianism have never been greater. Whatever we once were, we are no longer just a Christian nation. We are also a Jewish nation, a Muslim nation, a Buddhist nation, a Hindu nation, and a nation of non-believers. End of quote. Note what President Obama said. The dangers of sectarianism have never been greater. Whatever we once were, we are no longer. The growth of cultural and religious diversity and the rejection of any religious conviction by the growing number of non-believers has changed the character of our nation. President Obama stated, Whatever we once were, we are no longer. What is meant by, we once were? What were we? We were a nation where the Ten Commandments were posted in our public buildings, our courts, our schools, and in homes across our nation. The scripture was quoted on the monuments and statues placed to honor our nation's heroes and our outstanding leaders. Our grandparents learned to read using the Bible as a textbook. What are we today? America is a nation of sectarianism. In our midst is a growing body of Muslims, Buddhists, Hindus, and non-believers 
There are more than 36 million recent immigrants in the United States today. Former presidential candidate Pat Buchanan stated in his book entitled State of Emergency. He writes, This is not immigration as America knew it, when men and women made a conscious choice to turn their backs on their native land and cross the ocean to become Americans. This is an invasion, the greatest invasion in history. Nothing of this magnitude has ever happened in so short a span of time. Nearly 90% of all immigrants now come from continents and countries whose people have never been assimilated fully into any Western country. End of quote. God instructed Israel regarding the stranger who would not assimilate into their land, who would not accept their culture, their laws, and worship the true God. In Exodus chapter 23, we read, You shall make no covenant with them, nor with their gods. They shall not dwell in your land, lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. Many of our educators, doctors, lawyers, and community leaders today are immigrants who have not assimilated into America. They continue their culture, their religious beliefs and ideology. Their influence is a significant factor in the changing values, morality, and priorities of America. We have become a nation sharply divided in opinion and judgment. Division and self-interest has brought our leadership into a crisis of non-action in spite of the serious challenges which are clearly evident. We are challenged by a growing public and private debt. It threatens every aspect of our society and future. We are threatened and growing in fear by acts of terrorism from within and outside our borders. We face challenges in health care, jobs, our justice system, our prison system, education, sustaining our military commitments, rebuilding our infrastructure of roads, bridges, transportation systems, and even the electrical grid of our nation. We are increasingly unprepared for the future. Division and internal strife are the greatest threat to our future. Our frozen inaction and internal debate paralyzes America. We need to act to resolve our challenges, but we cannot agree. In the perilous times of past global challenges, we were galvanized to act as one body, a united body. Today, we protest, argue, and debate. One people under God is simply not true of America today. What lies ahead for America? Without repentance and a complete change of spirit, Jesus Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords, stated very clearly the fruit of division and internal strife. In Matthew chapter 12, verse 25, we read, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation.
Therefore God also gave them up to uncleanness, in the lust of their hearts, to dishonor their bodies among themselves. For this reason God gave them up to vile passions. For even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust for one another, men with men committing what is shameful, and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error which was due. Greetings, brethren. My part in this year's Behind the Work presentation features the troubling rise of homosexuality in today's world. We have been witness to a monumental shift in the secular world's attitude towards homosexuality over the past few decades. In particular, over the past 15 years or so, we have seen a major public campaign to gain acceptance for an act and lifestyle that God calls an abomination. The legalization of same-sex marriage is the end goal of this campaign in an effort to equate healthy, God-ordained marriage between a man and woman with same-sex relationships. And as this propaganda blitz sweeps the world, we in God's church must resist such influences. If we are not on guard, we, and more especially our children, could find our own minds affected by the constant bombardment from the media, friends, relatives, and other sources influencing our thoughts in regard to just how destructive this lifestyle is, not only on an individual level, but on a national level too. As a boy growing up in Brisbane, Australia, during the 1940s and 50s, most people attended church every Sunday. The issue of homosexuality was not even an issue. It was something shameful, something to be shunned and expunged from society. It was viewed as unhealthy and evil in nature. How much has changed since those days? Recent polls suggest that a majority of Catholics now support same-sex marriage and their Protestant counterparts are not far behind. Focus on the Family President Jim Daly himself explained in his book Refocus that he believes conservative evangelicals should be careful not to create a super sin out of homosexuality. He said the changes he has instituted at Focus reflect a generational shift in priorities and style. Yet God's word implicitly commands that his people not follow or fit in with the traditions of the nations around. The concept that God created a human being who is unable to find happiness in a loving relationship unless he or she violates a biblical prohibition is neither plausible nor acceptable. God does not forbid something which is impossible to avoid. So where are we now in history and where will this lead us? Consider the following. England, New Zealand, France, Canada and at least eight other mostly Israelite descendant nations have passed same-sex marriage laws. The United States Armed Forces now permit homosexuals to serve openly. Openly practicing homosexual politicians are serving in high positions of power. Openly practicing homosexual bishops lead various Protestant denominations. And now we have gay-friendly Bibles. All of this is destructive to the individual and society. We must be mindful that God means what he says and says what he means. The only solution to this moral and spiritual plague taking root is for Christ to return, to sort out the wickedness of man. That, brethren, is why we are here this week, looking forward to a time in the not-too-distant future 
when peoples and nations will not be confused about such basic truths. And we, who remain faithful, will have the opportunity to teach all mankind a better way, a time when Christ will make all things new. And the terrible sadness this particular form of lifestyle shows but will be a distant memory. Until that time, however, brethren, we in God's church must be aware of our adversaries' devices. We must protect our minds, the minds of our children, putting on the helmet of salvation that the Apostle Paul talks about. Let us make no mistake, God is clear on his views regarding homosexuality. It will destroy a people and a nation that refuses to repent and turn from such practices. Even without the Bible, the historical record proves this point. The United States, Canada, Australia, New Zealand and the Western world in general has rejected God's word wholesale. All of you who follow him, you and me, will eventually be hated in all the world for his namesake. Part of that hatred, brethren, will stem from our non-compromising stand on this most important issue. If we be accused, then let us be guilty for defending the truth. You have polluted the land with your harlotries and your wickedness. Therefore the showers have been withheld, and there has been no latter rain. You have had a harlot's forehead. You refuse to be ashamed. God has called all of his people to be watchmen. You can read about that responsibility in Ezekiel the 33rd chapter. Dr. Roderick Meredith emphasized our present responsibility in the May-June 2011 Living Church News. In his article titled, Cry Out for the Gifts of the Spirit, Dr. Meredith stated, quote, For we in the Living Church of God are called to perform a truly powerful work before the Great Tribulation and before Christ's return. If we do not truly warn our people of what lies just ahead, then who will? Let us regularly focus on Ezekiel 33, verses 1 through 7. For as Herbert W. Armstrong explained, quote, This is our collective responsibility as the true church of God, end of quote. As watchmen, we see the fulfillment of various prophetic trends. One trend has always been in the news, the weather and natural disasters. How much damage can one earthquake do? According to historians, the deadliest earthquake on record occurred in Shanxi, China, on January 23, 1556 A.D. Estimates vary, but one geology institute estimates the fatalities totaled between 820,000 and 830,000. That may seem very far away, but most of us remember very recently the second deadliest earthquake on record the 7.0 magnitude quake that struck the nation of Haiti on January 12, 2010, just three and one half years ago. Officials estimated that more than 300,000 were killed, hundreds of thousands injured, and more than a million homeless. Maybe these big numbers don't seem very personally affecting, but when we see the agony of even just one family that has lost loved ones, it becomes more personal. And some of us have experienced natural disasters or have close family members who have been affected. 
My wife and I have a family member in Joplin, Missouri, who survived a major tornado just two years ago. Many of our church brethren also experienced it. Our World Ahead weekly update for May 26, 2011 reported, quote, The tornado that struck Joplin, Missouri last Sunday has been called the nation's deadliest single tornado since 1947. At least 125 people were killed. According to Mr. Carl Beiersdorfer, our pastor in the area, brethren in the affected congregations, Joplin, Harrison, and Springfield, are all well with no injuries that he's aware of. He also said the devastation from this tornado was like nothing he had ever seen. His own son and daughter-in-law lost their home and two cars, but survived the tornado unscathed. They were in an inside room in the house as it struck. End of quote. Can you imagine your home disappearing in a tornado or an earthquake? We personally need to be prepared for natural disasters, as we've warned you in sermons and in our publications. We need to pray for God's protection and ensure that we are indeed seeking God's kingdom first and His righteousness. We know that when the very end of this age arrives, natural disasters will come that will make the present ones seem minor by comparison. But every year, if we are watching, we get reminders of what is to come. How disastrous was 2012? In terms of homeless families, it was twice as disastrous as 2011. Here is what the May 25, 2013 Time magazine reported in its article titled, How Natural Disasters Changed the World in 2012. Quote, an estimated 32.4 million people around the world were forced from their homes by disasters last year. 98% of them weather-related, according to data just released by the Norwegian Refugee Council. The Internal Displacement Monitoring Center, one of the leading bodies that researches global uprooting, reports that is nearly double the number from 2011, and that 68%, 22.2 million, are in Asia, and with a tropical cyclone headed toward Myanmar, where tens of thousands of people fled ethnic violence in the last year for camps near the Andaman Sea. Refugee officials are warning of an impending humanitarian catastrophe." End of quote. The article continues to list the ten most affected countries, North Korea, Niger, the United States. Time magazine reports, quote, Superstorm Sandy displaced 776,000 people from their homes after it slammed into the New Jersey coast on October 29th. The storm affected 24 states on the eastern seaboard, killed at least 285 people, and racked up more than $70 billion in damages." End of quote. Other countries with record homeless from 2012 weather disasters include China, South Sudan, the Philippines, Cuba, Pakistan, Nigeria, and India. Brethren, we know that the four horsemen of the apocalypse have always ridden their horses symbolically since the revelator Jesus Christ presented them. But as our booklet, Revelation the Mystery Unveiled, emphasizes, there is an end time fulfillment. Quote, Jesus warned us of the great tribulation, a time unique in all history, Matthew 24, verses 21 and 22. The Great Tribulation begins shortly after the Abomination of Desolation, verse 15. 
and is the result of the final end-time fulfillment in rapid succession of the first five seals." End of quote. Yes, there is an end-time fulfillment as the four horsemen intensify their ride. In May 2013, many of us saw on television the tornado destruction in Moore, Oklahoma. ABC News reported, quote, The tornadoes that struck the Midwest this week, killing dozens and destroying hundreds of homes and schools in the Oklahoma City suburb of Moore, likely caused more than $1 billion in damages. And it's not just the tornadoes that wreak this kind of havoc. From wildfires to hurricanes, the country has suffered dozens of natural disasters that have left billions of dollars of damage in their wake, end of quote. Remember the experience of the Israelites in Egypt when God sent the ten plagues? God allowed the Israelites to experience the first three of the ten plagues. But then God made a difference. Exodus 8 and verse 22. And in that day I will set apart the land of Goshen, in which my people dwell, that no swarms of flies shall be there, in order that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the land. I will make a difference between my people and your people. Tomorrow this sign shall be, and the Lord did so. Brethren, God will protect his people, but we must be prepared to face future dangers. God will continue to use the weather and natural disasters to warn our Western nations, and all nations of the world for that matter. In his eye-opening booklet, Who Controls the Weather?, Dr. Meredith writes, quote, God's message is a message of great hope, a message of his great love for us. The increasing disasters around the world are a sign that God wants us to repent for our own good. Out of his great love, he wants to show us the consequence of our sins. End of quote. That's page 23. From Genesis to Revelation, God has revealed the blessings of obedience and curses for disobedience. At the Feast of Tabernacles, we picture the coming millennium when nations will learn the way to peace and reap the blessings. They will come to worship the Messiah, the King, Jesus Christ, in Jerusalem, as it tells us in Zechariah 14, verse 16. Brethren, we must continue to be faithful as God's watchmen, and then we can look forward to the time when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes him who sows seed. The mountains shall drip with sweet wine, and all the hills shall flow with it. That's Amos 9, verse 13. Let's fulfill our watchman responsibilities and look forward to the time when God will bless the world's weather as nations learn His way of life. Now the number of the army of the horsemen was two hundred million. I heard the number of them. And thus I saw the horses in the vision. Those who sat on them had breastplates of fiery red, hyacinth blue, and sulfur yellow. And the heads of the horses were like the heads of lions, and out of their mouths came fire, smoke, and brimstone. By these three plagues a third of mankind was killed. In 1984, my wife and I had the wonderful opportunity to keep the Feast of Tabernacles in the People's Republic of China. 
At that time, almost everyone was dressing in a green or blue mouse suit, and one size seemed to fit all. But change was in the air, as became apparent in our travels. An article in the China Daily, that's the official newspaper of the People's Republic of China, was encouraging people to wear Western clothes, as this would brighten up the streets. This was near the beginning of what would eventually become known as the New China. Following the death of Mao, Deng Xiaoping became the de facto leader of China, and he recognized an unmistakable truth. There were Chinese people prospering in Singapore, Taiwan, Hong Kong, and elsewhere, but not in the People's Republic of China. They were the same people, but their lives were very different, and he set about to change that. In 1984, China was clearly a third world country with central planning stifling most of the economy. But that is no longer the case. Deng is famously quoted as saying, it doesn't matter whether it's a white cat or a black cat, a cat that catches mice is a good cat. Some 30 years later, the results of socialism with Chinese characteristics have been nothing less than breathtaking. China is now the world's second largest economy. Its GDP has grown on average 10% plus each year for the past 30 years. It is now the world's largest exporter and second largest importer of goods. Today China is the world's largest producer of agricultural products and a major food exporter. With only 10% of the world's arable land, China feeds over 20% of the world's population. In 2010, China became the largest producer of automobiles on earth and also the largest consumer of cars. And China today holds the largest foreign currency reserves in the world. Today's Chinese are four times wealthier than they were 20 years ago. Literally hundreds of millions have been lifted out of poverty since Deng Xiaoping opened up the country and the Communist Party embraced the mantra, to get rich is glorious. On a 2012 trip to Hong Kong, we were struck by the number of advertisements in stores selling Rolex and other expensive watches. We also saw long lines waiting to be admitted to Gucci and other high-end stores. Making money and flaunting status symbols is all important. But in spite of this greatly increased wealth, recent studies indicate the Chinese are no happier today than they were 20 years ago. Envy by those who have less wealth is part of the reason. But this is not the only reason. And this has not been unnoticed by their leadership who recognize that something is missing, that there has to be more to life than making and accumulating money. They recognize that there is a moral component lacking in the new China. It is hoped by some that Confucianism will fill this moral gap. Confucius was a philosopher rather than a religious figure, and he believed that public officials should be chosen based on qualifications and upright character, not by who one is or who one knows. After his death, some of his ideas took off, and they have to a greater or lesser extent influenced China's rulers even to this day. For example, unlike some Western nations where lawyers reach the highest positions in the land, China's top leaders are engineers and scientists. 
The idea that leaders should be chosen based on qualifications and upright character is not new to those of us keeping this Feast of Tabernacles. There is a profound recognition that a moral component is missing in the new China, and moral teachings are being encouraged. Religion is on the rise. By the end of 2007, Amity Printing Company, located in Nanjing, had printed 50 million copies of the Bible. And what may surprise some is that 41 million were for use within China. The remaining 9 million were translated into 75 different languages for export. Other Chinese companies have printed significant numbers of the Bible for both domestic and export consumption. It is not difficult to conclude that before long, China may very well become the world's largest Bible publisher. And all this comes with government approval. The crackdown on churches that we often hear about in the Western press usually involves underground churches. Due to the past history of various institutions using religion to destabilize the country, China's leaders are understandably sensitive about foreign organizations infiltrating and destabilizing its large population. In light of all this, the Living Church of God has several strengths. We believe in and preach respect for government in our literature and on our telecasts. We teach and practice obedience to law. We also believe leaders should be appointed based on qualifications and character. We understand that China has challenges that we neither face nor understand. And this is why we must conduct ourselves respectfully. As it says in Romans the 13th chapter, verses 3 and 5, For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Therefore you must be subject not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. It is important to realize that while getting the gospel of the kingdom of God to the most populous country in the world is a challenge, God is opening up doors that we could not conceive of opening 30 years ago. Finally, I want to say this. In my admittedly limited travels to Hong Kong and China, I have found the Chinese to be a most likable people. They are, as we are, made in the image of God. Then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb, and spoke like a dragon, and he exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence, and causes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast, whose deadly wound was healed. He performs great signs, so that he even makes fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men. And he deceives those who dwell on the earth by those signs which he has granted to do in the sight of the beast. We are witnessing at this point in history the acceleration of a trend that was initiated more than 50 years ago. Pope John XXIII stunned the Christian world in the early 1960s when he summoned the Second Vatican Council, also known as the Ecumenical Council. According to the Encyclopedia Britannica, ecumenism is the worldwide movement toward unity 
or cooperation among the Christian churches. One of the most significant documents issued by the Second Vatican Council was called in Latin Unitatis Redintegratio, which means Restoration of Unity. This document presented a fundamental change in the historical approach the Catholic Church had toward those who had departed from its fellowship, those we prophetically identify as her daughters, namely the Eastern Orthodox Church, whose departure is known as the Great Schism of the year 1054, and those that left because of the Protestant Reformation in the 16th century. According to the document issued by the Vatican Council, those who departed were no longer called heretics, but separated brethren. As a result, in 1964, the Roman Catholic Church and the Eastern Orthodox Church canceled their mutual excommunications of one another, dating back to the year 1054. Thenceforth, the doors were opened from both sides to initiate an inter-church dialogue. John Paul II furthered the ecumenical efforts of reconciliation with the East, traveling to countries with an Orthodox majority like Romania, Bulgaria, Georgia, Greece, and Ukraine. John Paul II was also able to achieve surprising ecumenical progress with several Protestant denominations by allowing former Episcopal priests to become Catholic priests. He also accepted some Episcopal parishes into the Catholic Church. Another remarkable milestone during his papacy was the signing of a joint declaration with the Lutheran World Federation that restored a key doctrinal difference about the concept of justification, that is, how a sinner receives salvation. What Benedict XVI considered the most important task of his papacy was stated in his very first address to the College of Cardinals that had elected him Pope. Referring to himself, he spoke in the third person. The current successor assumes, as his primary commitment, that of working tirelessly toward the reconstitution of the fold and the visible unity of all Christ's followers. This is his ambition. This is his compelling duty. He is aware that to do so, expressions of good feelings are not enough. Four months later, on his first papal trip to Germany, Benedict XVI called an assembly of German evangelicals and Protestants who had gathered together on the occasion of his visit. Ecumenism does not mean uniformity in all expressions of theology. He pointed out that the common objective should be unity in multiplicity and multiplicity in unity. The National Catholic Reporter published an article on April 22, 2013, 
by John L. Allen Jr. with this title, Francis will be boon to ecumenism, expert predicts. I quote the first paragraph. For years, experts on ecumenism have said that the main stumbling block to putting the divided Christian family back together again isn't so much the papacy, but a certain overly monarchical model of it. If we could find ways of exercising primacy, they prophesied, unity might move a massive step closer to reality. One veteran expert believes those new ways may have arrived with Pope Francis, predicting that this pontiff will prove a boon to ecumenism. The low-key approach of Pope Francis caused a very positive impression on the whole world from the very beginning. If this new way of exercising primacy is combined with the performing of great signs so that he even makes fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men, Revelation 13, 13, then the dividing wall that still stands between Catholics, Protestants, and Orthodox churches will fall. It will probably happen suddenly, like someone asked, before the Berlin Wall fell, who would have thought it was going to come down the next morning? Those Christians with conservative and traditional views will be convinced that the Savior who will prevent the total moral collapse of human civilization has appeared on the world scene. It is not unusual for a deceived humanity to jump from one extreme to the other. According to biblical prophecy, when the transgressors have reached their fullness, this certainly includes the worldwide push to promote same-sex marriage. A king shall arise having fierce feature. Daniel 8.23 This could be an indication that the unification of the Christian churches of this world will be more or less simultaneous with the unification of Europe under one single king, according to Revelation 17, 12, 13. Speaking of the king mentioned above, the prophecy of Daniel continues, He shall destroy the mighty and also the holy people. Daniel 8:24. The holy people are the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Revelation 14:12. The same is said of the woman, the false church, identified as the mother of other churches. I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. So the same institution that appears to save civilization from moral collapse will persecute those who keep the commandments of God, those who keep the Sabbath and who will not worship 
the image of the beast. The ten horns which you saw are ten kings, who have received no kingdom as yet, but they receive authority for one hour as kings with the beast. These are of one mind, and they will give their power and authority to the beast. These will make war with the Lamb, and the Lamb will overcome them, for he is Lord of lords and King of kings, and those who are with him are called chosen and faithful. When Jesus was asked by his disciples, what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? He said, watch Bible prophecy. Those prophecies indicate the major culminating events of this age will occur in Europe and in the Middle East. And we're watching those prophecies being fulfilled today. Over 2,500 years ago, the prophet Daniel recorded visions of the future events that would occur in the last days. The visions that Daniel recorded in chapter 2 and chapter 7 of his book describe a great image with feet composed of a loosely adhering mixture of iron and clay. And also he describes a great beast with iron teeth and ten horns that works together with a great religious figure. These visions refer to a latter-day revival of the Roman Empire or a power in Europe with definite links to the ancient Roman Empire. John's vision in Revelation 17 verses 12 and 13 indicates this end-time revival of a Roman Empire will involve ten kings or ten leaders or ten nations that give their power to a beast. They'll actually surrender their sovereignty to a central government led by a strong political figure who will emerge in Europe, where the Roman Empire and the Holy Roman Empire existed for centuries. Prophecies in Isaiah 10 and Hosea chapter 5 and 10 indicate that Assyria, modern Germany, will play a leading role in this end-time revival of a European power linked to the Romans. Many have wondered how the European Union could fulfill these prophecies since it's currently composed of 27 nations and with more nations seeking to join. However, events in Europe are beginning to reveal how this will happen. Today, Europe is in the midst of a severe financial crisis that threatens its continued existence, and Europe is beginning to fragment and come apart, just like the iron and clay prophecy in the book of Daniel. The European financial crisis is actually opening fault lines between the North and the South, between the wealthy creditor nations in the North where unemployment is low and the struggling debtor nations in the South where unemployment is high and people are losing their source of livelihood and their dignity. Britain seems intent on leaving the European Union and France is losing its ability to determine the direction of Europe. However, and what is really remarkable, is that the financial crisis has catapulted Germany into a position of leadership in Europe, just like Bible prophecies have long predicted. Since Germany has the strongest economy in Europe, 
It has become the nation that other struggling nations are looking to, to bail them out of their financial problems. However, Germany is also beginning to lay down rules and conditions before offering loans. And as numerous observers are beginning to notice, Europe is becoming German as Germany pushes their ideas on the nations of Europe. In an effort to hold together the European Union and prevent the collapse of the Euro, Germany is emerging as the dominant leader in Europe and also the schoolmaster of Europe. They're ready to show other nations how to solve their problems. Ulrich Becht, a German sociologist, has stated that no one intended this to happen for Germany to rise to the top, but it is happening. In the past, Germany has attempted to dominate Europe by the force of arms several times, but they failed. Yet today, Germany has been thrust into a leadership position, and Angela Merkel is actually being referred to as the uncrowned queen of Europe. End-time events are pushing Germany into its long-prophesied role. Merkel has also stated that nations in the Eurozone must be willing to surrender aspects of their sovereignty, such as control of their national budgets, to a European banking union if they hope to save the Euro and continue to build Europe. And that's exactly what the Apostle John predicted would happen nearly 2,000 years ago. Ulrich Beck has also written in his new book entitled German Europe that in the face of a potential catastrophe such as the collapse of the euro, decisions could be made that would have been unthinkable and even illegal in terms of national constitutions only months before. And we may see some surprising decisions in Europe in the days and the months ahead. Beck has observed that even the talk about the imminent collapse of Europe and the euro could result, and I'm using his words, the birth of a political monster, which actually fits with the biblical prophecy in Revelation chapter 13, verses 1 through 3, about the appearance of a European beast power that will surprise the world. Fearing a major catastrophe, a European leader or leaders could use the crisis to gain more power and push for a Europe-wide governmental control. A recent article in the London Times stated that the Europe that will emerge from the financial crisis will be different from the Europe that entered that crisis. During the past year, European leaders have focused more attention on the 17 Eurozone countries and that they've actually begun to exclude the non-Euro nations. And talk again has emerged about a two-speed Europe with a core of nations in Central Europe who are willing to form a closer financial and political union and then a periphery of nations who are associated with but not part of this European project. And this will further reduce the number of nations that will be part of this end-time beast. The emergence of a ten-nation Europe beast power could also be aided by other prophesied events emanating from the Middle East. Brendan Sims, the historian at Cambridge University in England, has commented in his new book entitled Europe, 
that Europeans have only ever experienced unity in the face of an external or an internal threat. Today, Europe is facing an internal financial crisis that is threatening its continued existence, as well as the issue of 13 million Muslims who live in Europe who are unassimilated, unemployed, alienated, and angry. Coupled with these internal threats is the rise of Islamic fundamentalism in countries to the south and the east of Europe, you know, across North Africa and through the Middle East, where radical Islamists are attacking Westerners, driving out Christians, installing Islamic law, and dreaming of a global caliphate that includes gaining control of Europe. It's a dream that the Muslims have had since the 600s. In light of these developing threats to Europe, we need to remember that Daniel prophesied in chapter 11, at the time of the end, the king of the south will push against the king of the north, but the king of the south will be defeated and overrun by the king of the north. We see this push occurring today in the actions of radical Muslim terrorists who are shooting at people, setting off bombs in Europe, and in the street demonstrations and riots by disaffected Muslims in European cities, and also in the torturing, killing, and beheading of professing Christians in Muslim countries. These militant actions by Muslims that threaten the continued existence of European culture, especially on the continent of Europe, could foster a renewed interest in the Catholic faith that has long been the defining factor of European Christendom. And this is exactly what the Apostle John foresaw in the book of Revelation chapter 13 in his vision of a beast and a false prophet who worked together for a short period of time at the end of the age. While skeptics scoff at the idea of an all-powerful God who guides world events and doubters smile at the idea of the Bible being the inspired word of God, events are actually moving in the direction that was predicted long ago in the pages of the Bible. And those ancient prophecies are coming alive today in the news especially in Europe and in the turbulent Middle East. Look around us. Think about what has happened recently in only the last year. I'm sure other huge news events have happened between the making of this film and right now as you watch it. It's a grim reminder of the pivotal times we are living in right now. It's shocking. It's sobering. Yet it's exciting having the hope of His coming. Jesus Christ prophesied of these times in His Olivet Prophecy found in Luke 21. He said, There will be signs in the sun, in the moon, and in the stars, and on the earth distress of nations, with perplexity, the sea and waves roaring, men's hearts failing them from fear and the expectation of those things that are coming on the earth. That's Luke 21, verses 25 through 26. These prophetic times were foretold many years ago and are sure now as they have ever been. Jesus Christ promised His disciples that He would return to save His elect before it's too late. 
He said in the same chapter in Luke 21, When these things begin to happen, look up and lift up your heads, because your redemption draws near. That's verse 28. He warns us to be alert and awake. He commands us to come out of sin. He said, Take heed to yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with carousing, drunkenness, and the cares of this life, and that day come upon you unexpectedly. That's Luke 21, verse 34. Jesus Christ is returning. He said, Watch therefore, and pray always that you may be counted worthy to escape all these things that will come to pass, and to stand before the Son of Man. That's Luke 21, verse 36. The Feast of Tabernacles is a yearly reminder of the prophesied millennium which will begin when Christ returns, a thousand years of God's rule on earth. Mankind has a real future to look forward to. His kingdom is coming quickly, and he will be putting an end to the bad news as the gospel message is implemented once and for all. May God speed that day. And now for his concluding remarks, the presiding evangelist of the Living Church of God, Dr. Roderick C. Meredith. Greetings, brethren, all around the world. It's great to be able to speak to you in this way, and I hope that all of you are having a wonderful feast. Brethren, thank you for your love and your loyalty, your constant support. I deeply appreciate the warmth and the love that you've shown. So many of you have sent my wife and me letters and emails of encouragement and prayers, and we deeply appreciate that. Thank you for your love. Thank you for the constant unity and the loyalty that you've shown, and I, I thank God for it, and I know all of us here at headquarters do. So I do want to thank you very much. I know you know it's impossible for us to write or for me to write every one of you back a letter of thanks, but we do appreciate your help. Brethren, back in June 1952, exactly 61 years ago, I began full-time serving in the ministry. An ordained minister, but nevertheless acting full-time as a minister because I just graduated in early June from Ambassador College in, in 1952. And I immediately led Mr. Burt McNair out on a nationwide baptizing tour from coast to coast and even up into southern Canada for a while. And we baptized many dozens of people on that tour. And we had a tour of 13, I guess whatever it was, 11 weeks and about 19,000 miles driving and driving, sacrificing, missing sleep, having danger, having guns pointed at us, all kinds of exciting things. But I was in the ministry. Then at the end of the summer, we went to San Diego and baptized some people. And right after that, as Burke went back into college, I carried on full time then. And I got Mr. Armstrong's permission to raise up the Church of God in San Diego. So I had the privilege of raising up the first church as a result of Ambassador College. Then later, I was sent up to Portland, Oregon to pastor up there. And then, of course, I began to start the church in the Seattle-Tacoma area during that winter and was brought down during that winter to be able to be ordained as an evangelist in the Church of God. So I was serving, and during all those years, I've seen lots of ups and downs in God's church, as you can imagine, all kinds of trials and tests. And I've seen all kinds of twists and turns 
in world events and in the prophetic events. Many of these newer, newer, younger ministers you've just heard from, very fine men of God, have described various aspects of the happenings of this last year or so and what's happening in world events and in prophecy. But I have seen lots of things like that over the years, and I tell you sincerely that in all those years, I've realized now in the last few months that we are positioned, let's say, in world events for the end to come much, much more quickly and much more easily than ever before. And many of you realize that. It's time for us to get really in earnest as we see the end approaching. And I hope we can understand that. In 1969, many thought that the work was going to end in 1972. And I got Mr. Herbert Armstrong's permission to send out a letter to the entire ministry worldwide describing how there were five major reasons why we would have more time perhaps 15 or 20 or 30 years beyond 1972. And, of course, it's been even more years than that. But I'm glad I could send out that letter of warning at that time to God's people. And we need to realize we must not set exact dates. Yet I'm telling you that in all the years' experience I've had, I've never sensed that the end is as close as I sense that it's coming now. And I hope we can realize that and get excited about what's going on. But now we are definitely very close to the end of an age. We have the President of the United States, the former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton, and many others saying that same-sex marriage is just fine. They're certainly approving all kinds of abortion right up to the very time a woman would give birth. And this doctor in Philadelphia even murdering babies right after they were born, as a matter of fact. Horrible things going on that are sanctioned in our society that never would have been dreamed of even 20 or 30 years ago, and you older brethren realize that. We are living in a different age, and we have to understand. We know that God is intervening, and we know He's going to intervene. But now, we brethren have a job to do, and we need to realize our responsibility. I'm very thankful for the dedicated ministry we have to do that job. He is guiding us. And we have the men that you've heard, just heard from, such as Mr. Ames, Dr. Nail, Mr. Gerald Weston, and the others. Very dedicated men of God. And I'm thankful for the team we have. Our men at the top, and I mean this before God, and you can talk to us, you can talk to our secretaries, to the office staff. We love one another, frankly. Most of us are very dear friends. We have enemies out there who are saying we're having a power struggle we all laugh about that. That's ridiculous. There is no power struggle. We are looking to God for power to do the work. And we're working together as a team better than ever before. And I'm very, very grateful for that. And I hope all of you can understand that. I'm very grateful for the love, the comradeship, the loyalty we have among the top ministry. And we are positioned as a work to do a more powerful work than ever because of the team we have. And we need to realize that. Satan knows this. He knows these world events are shaping up, that the end of his time is getting very close before he's cast back down. He doesn't like it. He sees we're preparing the way for Christ's return. He doesn't like that either. And so he is going to try to intervene. He's already beginning to intervene. He's going to intervene much more, brethren, in your lives and in your attitudes. He's going to try to divide and conquer. Sometimes when we're not close to God, we will sort of feel an attitude coming in our mind. 
to stir us up, stir us up. Sometimes waves of discouragement will come. We need to think about it in our mind and ask God to help us discern where this comes from. It often does not come from anything we have read or heard recently. It simply comes right out of the air, it seems. And who, brethren, is the prince of the power of the air? You know that. It's Satan the devil. He is the prince of the power of the air. And he's pumping these attitudes out. And we need to realize that's going to increase. It's not going to get better. It's going to get worse as the end approaches. And finally, as we read in Revelation chapter 12, there's going to be a great battle in heaven where he and his demons will be cast down for the last time. And he will roar around this world trying to attack and hurt and discourage and divide and upset the people of God. Do not let him get at you. Do not let him get at any of God's people. And I hope and pray all of you can realize the need to be really close to God and not to let that happen to you. He knows we're about to get God's message to this world and he will try to get at us. So we need to be ready and we need to be strong. Notice in First Peter at the end of this letter, be sober, Peter writes, be vigilant, be vigilant because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. So Satan the devil is stalking around like a lion ready to leap out from behind the bushes and attack God's people. We want to picture that. You need to fight the fight of faith and never let Satan get you down. Never let anything get you distracted. But know that God is there, that he is our father. He will never leave us. He will never forsake us. But we do need to look to him. So we've got to know he's going to do this. And he's walking about like a roaring lion. Resist him, God tells us, steadfast in the faith. We need faith and courage, brethren. You know that. All of you need faith and courage in the days and the years just ahead. Resist him, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. They're attacked, and they're usually overcome because they don't have God's Spirit. Most of you do have the Holy Spirit. You need to cry out to God for strength and perception to realize when it comes from Satan and not let these ideas and attitudes come in your mind ever, ever. But may the God of all grace, who's called us to, as I've explained so many times, the Greek word is ice, meaning into, not just to, but into. We actually are going to partake of the eternal glory by Christ Jesus after you have suffered a while. Oh, we have to go through trials and tests first. Don't give up in those trials and tests. Keep right on to the end. After you have suffered a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So you've got to be sure that you are close to God and that you never let yourself be disturbed or distracted by Satan the devil. We must not let that happen. But meanwhile, brethren, we do have a tremendous opportunity. And it's not a chore. It's an opportunity. When I was sent on that baptizing tour 61 years ago, I knew I was going to lose sleep. I'd been on a tour the previous summer, and I knew how it was going to be. I was going to lose sleep, lose meals, but I knew there were those people out there who would literally cry when we left them, knowing they might not see anyone again from Ambassador College. And we would talk to them, help them, and baptize them, and then lay hands on them after baptism and leave them, knowing we had no local church there. 
because at that time in 51, we only had Portland, Eugene, and Pasadena on the West Coast. That was it in the entire Worldwide Church of God. And most of those people had to live for years before they ever had a church close by. But brethren, we need to realize God has called us not just to get saved, but to do a job. And God tells us that and gives us the example. The perfect example is our Savior, Jesus Christ. When he had talked to this Samaritan woman, his disciples told him, Rabbi, eat. But he said, I have food to eat of which you do not know. Therefore his disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him anything to eat? And Jesus said, John 4:34. Jesus said, My food, my strength, my nourishment, his whole reason for being, which I hope will be your reason for being as it is mine. This is why we're here. This is why you and I are called now. God could call us later for personal salvation in the great white throne judgment, but he's calling us now. So he says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Do you not say there are still four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say, lift up your eyes and look at the fields, for they're already white for harvest. He who reaps receives wages. If you give your life to God, you will receive wages. You receive a higher opportunity to serve, to be over five cities or ten cities or a whole nation or a whole planet later on in the eternal government of God to be set up on this earth and perhaps on other planets throughout the whole universe. We receive wages from God if we do His work today. He will bless us way beyond what we could be blessed doing anything else and gathers fruit. We will gather fruit for eternal life that both he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. We're rejoicing in this festival, but let's realize why we're here in this festival and the local Sabbath and all the other activities of God. We're being taught and trained to be God's eternal servants in the kingdom of God, the family of God to last forever and to help people live the right way of life. So let's understand that and let's deeply appreciate the calling that God has given us. I pray that God can help every one of you catch the vision that we are in God's church can really understand the big picture which we do of world events and be inspired by that, that we're near the time that Christ is coming. He is coming. Brethren, I can tell you that I can see these world events shaping up as never before. He's coming soon. So let's get ready. Let's all pray fervently for Almighty God to bless us, to inspire us, to lead us, and to empower us. Beseech God that we ourselves, as, as the church of God, may be able to heal the sick, discern spirits, cast out demons, grant, pray for the gifts of the Spirit, pray for greater power in God's work, pray that God will call many more members and co-workers to give the money, to give the resources that we can get on more stations, do a more powerful job. Each one of us do our part with all of our hearts. Ask God to inspire us and lead us as never before. We have a tremendous opportunity. We do have a wonderful team. And I'm inspired with the wonderful team of ministers here at headquarters and around the world. I'm inspired with the love and loyalty of you, brethren, and I appreciate it very much. We have a wonderful God, our Father, our Christ, who watches over us and guides us and leads us. We have a wonderful goal to be members of the eternal kingdom of God to be set up soon on this earth. Let's get ready. Let's move forward, brethren, with zeal and with love and with faith and courage more than ever before. May God bless you. May God bless the rest of this feast. May God help us get ready to do the job for which God has called us 
and to be part of his eternal kingdom and be fulfilling the purpose for which God has given us life and breath. This has been a production of The Living Church of God.